This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Cameron Steele, coordinator of People for a Living Mirabal, as well as Dr Erin O'Donnell, a water rights law expert at the University of Melbourne. They joined me to discuss the Mirabal River, Victoria's most flow-stressed river. We also discuss the community's film, The River Murrable, which is having local screenings across the region. And I'm really pleased to welcome onto the program two guests who are going to be speaking together uh, with myself about an issue that is really crucial. And it's been great to see that it's getting some traction in the media um, through such a wonderful documentary. The documentary is called The River Murrable. And it just had a local screening in Ballarat. It's going to have another screening very soon. I'll give you the details of that. I'll introduce our guests. Cameron Steele is the coordinator of People for a Living Murrabal, or PALM for short, P-A-L-M. You can obviously search them online and and find out their fantastic advocacy. And also uh, Dr Erin O'Donnell is someone I've actually spoken to once before on this show very early on in the piece for Uncommon Sense. I think it was perhaps 2017 uh, that we were talking about the rights of rivers with Erin, who is really interested in the groundbreaking new field of legal rights for rivers. And so uh, these two guests who are both experts on uh, rivers and advocating for rivers and talking about the kind of crucial role that rivers play, not just environmentally and economically, but also culturally. And that is something that the film draws out really beautifully is the cultural and and human element to our relationship with rivers. But this chat will be particularly about the Murrabal River. So I welcome Cameron Steele and Dr Erin O'Donnell now to the show. Hi there, Cameron. Good morning, Amy. Um, Really pleased to be with you this morning. Thanks so much for coming on. And uh, also, Erin, hi, how are you? Good morning. So lovely to be here with you again, Amy. It's great to have you both on the show. And as soon as I saw this film and this issue, I knew I had to talk about it. And I've just been waiting (laughs) patiently for a week. So excuse my excitement. But uh, first of all, I really want to talk with you, Cameron, about the Moorable River. And let's just kind of set the scene for those who aren't acquainted with the Murrabal River, first of all, in terms of its location, but also its essential features, its essential history and essential ecology. And I wonder if you could share with us what you've come to understand about the Murrabal River, and we can tease out some of the elements that you mentioned. Yeah, the the Murrabal River runs from the Wombat State Forest uh, down past a whole bunch of towns, basically to the east of uh, Ballarat and down to Geelong, and it joins the Barwon River um, just outside of Geelong. Um, it's a river I sort of grew up with, um, swimming in it. I've uh, got married <laughs> near, the, near the banks of the Moorable. Um, played a big part in just those early years. Uh, but it was during the millennial drought that uh, you know we saw the river at our local spot completely dry out and walking kilometre after kilometre of a dry riverbed was extremely formative in, in uh, driving the advocacy that um, uh, myself and others have uh, continued with since then. We've got to learn about other sections of the river, not just our patch, 
and it really gets under your skin. There's some stunningly beautiful parts of this river, some bits that really take your breath away, but we can also see the severe decline the river has suffered, and that got uh, quite a few of us together and, and really starting to look at some of the facts and figures behind the Moorabool and, you know, to learn that ultimately it was regarded as, the mo- or still is regarded as one of the most flow stress in Victoria and Stephen Brax back in that era uh, acknowledged that it was the most flow stress in Victoria. So we felt that shouldn't continue and really then set ourselves the task of trying to lobby government and um, get community support for reversing the trajectory of the river. And one of the most potent comments, I think, about the river was delivered by the then CCMA or Catchment Management Authority Chair, Peter Gregg, and he said in a uh, forward to a, a flow study on the river that unchecked the trend is for the river of the Moorabool to become little more than a drain. We were pretty determined that trajectory was reversed and that's been the focus of our efforts ever since. Well, it is really concerning and I know that the footage in the documentary shows parts of the river where it really is concerningly lacking in flow and kind of becomes still and obviously um, far less water. It almost looks like a a semi-drained creek in one spot in that film. I wonder if you could share with us the dynamics of the river and how it actually operates and runs down from Wombat Forest. I know it branches off into two branches and you talk in the film and explain about the presence of dams um, and how all of that, the groundwater, and how that feeds into the river and how it actually functions. Yeah, so at the head of the catchment, there's um, a groundwater management area and what the studies showed was for every megalitre of water that came out of that groundwater area, that was 0.6 less of a megalitre that made it into the river. And one of the um, interviewees in the film, Peter Dalhouse, um, explains that a river only flows when it's not raining because of that groundwater coming into the river. So as you come down the river, both the east and the west Moorabool are heavily dammed and those dams, uh, most of them are the water authorities. So Central Highlands Water and, and Barn Water uh, take water from those dams to supply both Geelong and Ballarat. At the heart of the Moorabool or just uh, above where the East Moorabool joins is an enormous dam. And for those listeners in Geelong who you know, may think about where their water comes from, quite often the answer will be, well, we know the West Barwon Reservoir in the Otways, and many people will have visited if they've driven up through forest. That reservoir is about 20,000 megalitres. Um, the one on the Moorable is 60,000, and this is on a river with one-third the flow. So there's very little wonder that um, this river is highly stressed. As you come down the river from there, there are certain offtakes. When you get close to Geelong, the river, as I explained in the film, faces another huge challenge, and that's the Finesford Quarry. Uh, this is a limestone quarry which has been operating for well over 100 years, and what they've done is on two occasions diverted the course of the Moorable, basically put it into a concrete channel. 
the problem is that the one done in the 1930s has fallen into total disrepair and the water drains out of the bed of the river and basically flows into the quarry to be pumped out further down. And this has enormous impacts on the river and migratory species, etc. But those pumps are due to be switched off sometime in the future and that will have a devastating impact on connectivity um, right at the mouth of the river. Yeah. And in terms of where things get the worst in terms of the flow and and obviously the water becoming stagnant, where do you think the worst impacts of this um, over-allocation and these, these effects actually have? Like what part of the Mirable do you think is most distressed? Look, I'd probably stick the hand up for the East Mirable. That is really in terrible condition. What happens in the East Mirable is the, the Water Authority actually channels water uh, around the river so the the water doesn't get a chance to have that dual use of being transported uh, down the river to an offtake. It's It's got enormous problems with salinity, certainly streamside vegetation is almost non-existent in large sections. But I'd also say the southern part near Finesford and Batesford, the science says that under natural conditions, that should be enjoying 90 megalitres a day of flow. Well, that's been reduced to just 10. And the annual overflows of the river that used to occur um, are very rare now. So those anabranches and billabongs that used to get a drink of water, they only get a drink very, very rarely. And, and that's only when the Lala Reservoir spills, it uh, goes over the top down the spillway. And that's happening far less frequently than what it even did 10 to 15 years ago. Before we bring in Erin Cameron, I wanted to also ask about one of the natural features that's part of the Murrabal River and surrounds it. And you just mentioned there the riverbeds and vegetation, and clearly that is really key and is addressed in the film in terms of reducing salinity, which is caused by erosion. But there is one really stunning part that I was struck by, which was the granite. And um, obviously I know the granite falls are one part of that area, which is really quite unique and beautiful. So I wonder if you could share with us some of those really uniquely inspiring parts of the ecology that make up the river, not even just the the water, obviously, but the natural environs and also the animals that are attracted to that area? Look, there are sections of the Murrabal which are, as I said, stunning, and particularly down from Lao Lao Reservoir. The the Lao Lao Forest and further down, even and below Shiok, some of that gorge country. I mean, I've, I've swum in the Murrabal at um, Farmer's Place, Peter Strays, who's in the film, and I've had eel elvers making their way up across my body to then climb the rocks in front of me. Just extraordinarily deep, beautiful part of the river. You can sit there and you can see the wallabies up on the um, on the cliff facing. You you can see echidnas, there's platypus, there's a whole bunch of stuff that just envelops you when you're in those parts of the river. The sections between uh, around Meredith, for instance, um, which again access, uh, there's three bridges across the Moorable. Some of those are, are absolutely stunning. I've walked quite a bit of that area with a, um, Barry Gilson, the Wuthering man, uh, mentioned in the film. And, you know, he, both he and I just drink the place in. It's, it's extraordinarily beautiful. 
is it any wonder? And I really appreciated hearing from Alison Puglio, who's a almost regular guest on this show, I guess now, who talks about fungi on Uncommon Sense, but she told some really amazing stories, one in particular about those migratory eels that actually come from the ocean and go into the Murrabool and how critical that connection is and that the river is flowing so that the eels can survive. Oh, my word. And when she talks about them coming from the Coral Sea and the journey they've taken, and I can tell you I, I, we did the interview with her and then I'm standing in the river with it, watching these eels go up the, this rock face and you want to help every single one of them because yeah. you know the journey that they've undertaken to get there. And that, that rhythm of the river which really speaks to a, a living entity. Uh, it, it just, you know, th- this, this river looks after so many people, but it also looks after these ecosystems and species like the, the eel, the shorefinned eel. And once you become aware of that, your heart really opens to the river and, and when you recognise the plight, to, plight it's in, it just drives you to do something for it. It certainly uh, brought me on board watching this film and uh, I really wanted to bring in now Dr Erin O'Donnell who is an expert in water law and also the rights of nature, particularly the rights of rivers, which is really interesting. And Erin's latest book is called Legal Rights for Rivers and you've, I know Erin, been publishing some interesting papers on this as well and have um, provided some quotes for this documentary in, in terms of just how wonderful it is and critical it is to bring this issue to the attention of the public. So I wanted to to bring you in here and ask about your introduction to rivers and also the Murrable and what has driven you to be in this area. And then we'll get into some of the water law aspects. Thanks, Amy. Um, I guess, I mean, the, the short answer about what's brought me here is really trying to understand how we can better care for rivers So um, going back many years now, in a former role, I helped to create the Victorian Environmental Water Holder, which was the first time that the state decided that water rights for the environment should be held by an independent agency. But when we did that, the environment started to take on new forms of legal personality. It started to have new legal rights. It started to participate in the market. And so that, for me, raised a whole lot of questions about how does that change our relationship with the environment? If rivers are starting to assert themselves with legal rights and to participate in the market, so buying and selling water rights, then does that change our relationship to rivers? Does it change our responsibility to rivers? Do we start to expect that rivers then start to look after themselves? So that was that's really brought me into a very exciting international space. And I think... Um, the work that Cameron and others are doing on the Moorable fits beautifully into um, a tapestry of events which are unfolding across the world that see rivers being recognised in lots of different countries as having the status of a legal person. And we can talk a little bit about that if you're interested. But I think more fundamentally, and this was something that, that Cameron mentioned just now, they are being recognised as alive, as living beings in their own right. And that's a really profound transformative shift. Well, it's undeniable, really, isn't it, that they're alive, especially when you watch this film and you get to understand the very different perspectives that all see the river and its health as vital for human beings in the area, 
the farming properties and businesses, the wineries, the townships, the people who love the river um, and have that personal connection, obviously the First Nations peoples who also have that very strong connection to the river. It has so many different points of contact and points of meaning and it's something that the film draws out is the issue, and Alison Puglio I know mentions this, is if we're just quantifying its value in economic terms, then we're missing out on the qualitative values, the things that are really hard to measure and that we probably won't be able to measure even if an economist decided to create an arbitrary model to um, try and put a dollar value on certain things that are not quantifiable. So I wanted to, to, I guess, bring you in on that point as well and to ask about how we as a society but also as the law view rivers given that this river and other rivers in Australia seem to have a very transactional kind of focus in terms of water allocation and the reliance, the very heavy reliance of commerce and humans on these rivers in particular. So I think that's a really good question. And to understand it in the Australian context, um, we need to acknowledge the impacts of colonisation. So the change in people's relationship with rivers really started to happen when white people, when English people arrived in Australia and started claiming the land for their own. Before that, um, and in the law of First Nations and traditional owners across Australia, country, country includes rivers, it includes whole landscapes. Country is alive and country is something that um, people are in a relationship with. So it is something that you owe obligations to um, and that you have mutual dependency with. So that that's the origin um, of our relationship with rivers from a human scale. But I think what's happened since then, um, and particularly you know since 1788 and Australia's status changing to a, a British colony, what started to change in our relationship with rivers was that they became merely legal objects. They had no rights of their own. They certainly weren't recognised as alive. They were objects over which human beings um, and largely white human beings, because, of course, Aboriginal people were almost entirely dispossessed of their rights to land and water, white human beings had dominion over rivers. And that's really carried through very strongly um, all the way through until very recently. Um, when we're starting to see some shift in the law. But even there, I think in, in Australia, there's only one river that has been formally recognised in law as a living entity, and that's the Birrarung, the Yarra that flows through Melbourne. So I think there is appetite in Victoria for recognising more rivers in this way because it really does change the conversation. It changes the narrative around what a river is and what we are doing with a river. So you picked up on this idea that um, that rivers have been in this transactional, trapped really, in this transactional exploitative relationship with human beings. And that's, that's certainly the case and it continues to be the case for most rivers across Australia. But once we recognise that a river is alive, it moves us out of that um, transactional question of what can we get from the river and starts to push us into a space where we begin asking, well, what do we want for the river? And when you acknowledge that the river is alive, you can ask the second question, which is, well, how do we get there with the river? And so the river becomes a collaborator, an ally, a partner in its own management. And that can be a really powerful shift. 
Yeah. Well, from a lay person's perspective, just thinking about what you said in terms of giving legal rights to the Birrarung and the Yarra, it makes you think, well, if one river in Victoria has those rights, why shouldn't the other rivers have those rights? I mean, is there something that's really distinctly different in terms of the the right to claim rights? Should all rivers be equal if you grant one legal rights? Shouldn't you be looking to at least start the process of bestowing the same level of respect on others? So I think that's right. I think the challenge with it becomes that the most successful examples of recognising that rivers are alive, and I should clarify that the Birrarung does not have legal person status, which means it can't go to court and it can't own property in its own right, but it does have that status as a living entity. So we're starting to change our relationship without necessarily changing the legal powers of the river. But just to to link that back in, one of the, the drivers of success is the relationship between people and the river. So... To change the status of the river in law, the most successful strategy for that is through place-based legislation. So legislation which is really targeted around a specific river and the community of people that live along and love the river. And where these kinds of legal reforms are led by traditional owners, then they they seem to have lasting success. So we can see this in the example of the Birrarung, the Yarra. Um, we can also see this in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with the example of the Whanganui River. So when the legal reform is shaped by traditional owners um, and when it is the community around the river um, and their relationship with the river that is at the heart of this new piece of legislation... Those are the two critical ingredients, I think, for success um, at scale. And I think that poses a real challenge for the way that we do legal reform in Australia because we tend to abstract um, and universalise. So we start to say, well, maybe all rivers should have this status. But how do we meaningly confer that on all those rivers without having a very clear voice from community, from traditional owners, a voice that emanates from place, and that's something that really comes through very strongly in in Cameron's film. It really does. And Cameron, I think what is really interesting as well is obviously that there is a local community and it has been really active for a very long time. Obviously, Palm, the People for a Living Moorable, which you are the coordinator of, you know, linking in with groups like land care in the local areas that surround the Moorable River and, of course, the Wathorong tribe, who are the local traditional owners of the land. These are, you know, very passionate advocates. And I was reading through your website and looking through the previous articles and advocacy, and this is something which has really been impressive and going on for a long time. And the voice that this film gives is really great because it's bringing together all of those wonderful and beautifully passionate people um, who love this river. So I, I wanted to ask you about some of the things that this group Palm and the broader community have been doing together. And I know that the film draws out and addresses some of the issues like land clearing that Erin mentioned is um, a result of colonisation, given that white 
settlers who dispossessed uh, First Nations peoples had a very strong propensity to clear land across the whole state, and that certainly did affect uh, the river itself. So, you know, we have seen in the film um, some really interesting initiatives that local community groups have been taking to try and improve the overall health of the river themselves. So I wonder if you could share with us some of those stories as well. Yeah, the focus of Palm has always been the flows. Um, that that has been what's driven us. Um, the the two filmmakers, Ian Penner and Stephen Oates, I mean, they were um, have been part of the original group back twelve odd years ago when we pushed hard to get the environmental allocation for the river enacted for the for the Moorable. We in that campaign back then, I I really came to recognise the power of the film as a medium. Uh, I remember taking the film to a um, council meeting at the Golden Plains uh, Shire and there was some fairly gruff farmers sitting around as councillors and with arms crossed and we had a short 12-minute film on that occasion and just to see the arms becoming uncrossed and them leaning forward and recognising parts of the river that they might have grown up around and the change that that brought about in their demeanour and hopefully their attitudes was quite um, uh, awe-inspiring for me. And during that time, we, we managed to get the three shires, the Moorable, the Golden Plains and the Geelong, to each have a councillor to form a group councillors for the Moorable River. And that was a really strong part of the lobbying effort that uh, we put in. So, look, that focus on flows means that, um, you know, we're, we're not a group that's looking to improve uh, the condition of around the river with vegetation or anything like that. That falls to landcare groups. And there's some brilliant landcare groups um, along the river. And we purposefully offered the film to each of the landcare groups, uh, the uh, Geelong Landcare Network and the Moorable um, Landcare Group, to run the film in uh, both Geelong and Ballarat. And we thought that was um, a really essential part of it because these are the people that put in countless hours and often uh, a lot of personal funds into improving the river and the banks and the vegetation and, and doing works along the river. So we're, we're one part of um, looking after the river. Uh, there's many other people doing their bit, but in the end, a river without water isn't really a river. And for us, the challenge for us is to really try and deal with the politics, try and get the interests of the river up in the government and politicians' consciousness because I think, you know, when we've had a chance to sit down with politicians or bring them onto the river, you know, that, that understanding, level of understanding which we see within them has in the past been really pivotal to actions on the river. Unfortunately, you deal with a whole new group quite often, both within departments and within the political parties, and so that education effort never stops. And we've got an opportunity at the moment because there's a strategy review which is underway, and that to us is a pivotal moment. And so the timing of the release of the film really was centred around that review and the draft, which is going to be available soon, you know, really will be asking for community input and we're looking to drive that community input and have people who have been enlightened about the condition of the Moorable 
and are prepared to stand up for it, well, that will be the opportunity for them to um, have a say for the future of the river. Well, that's excellent to hear. And I wanted to ask about environmental allocation, given that that's something that you have taken a a clear stance and role on. Where are we at with environmental allocation? And for those who may not have heard the discussions around environmental allocation in other chats, like I've spoken about the Murray-Darling before, and obviously environmental allocation is a a sticking point there. What is the situation with the Murrable and um, is that part of the review? Are we seeking to try to increase the environmental allocation? Oh, most definitely. The last um, Central Region Sustainable Water Strategy said the Murrable needs 20,000 megalitres of more water to sustain itself. Through that process, there was 2,500 megalitres and that was in the form of a, a storage, uh, I think 11% of the Lao Lao Reservoir was set aside for storing environmental water. And that did have some benefits, it's it, it certainly uh, for that section. We were actually told by the CCMA that that was unlikely to assist any part of the downstream areas like Batesford. Fortunately, Bowen Water and uh, the CCMA have coordinated some flows down the river. And so we have seen some improvements down there. But really, it's a, it's a fraction of what the river needs. What was also allocated as environmental flows was discharges out of the quarry that we spoke about earlier, and that's three, three to 3,500 megalitres. But those pumps are due to be switched off when Geelong uh, expands to the west and to the north. And as I said, that will have a dramatic impact on the river. So here we are facing going backwards and regards to environmental flows to the river. Granted that that, those flows out of the quarry only impact a a small part of the river. So we're calling for environmental flows across all the reservoirs in the river. There's no reason why they shouldn't exist on the Quinjibora, the the Moorable Reservoir, the Bostock Reservoir, et cetera. You know, that, that would just be common sense. But there's other initiatives that could be taken with regard to water. But DELP have been quite clear that once you take over 30% of a river's allocation, um, you really start impacting quite dramatically its health. And when we talk about the Moorable, we're talking about 90% being taken, certainly by the time it gets down to the lo- those lower sections. So there's a very stark reason why it needs those environmental flows. But the final point is that the long-term water assessment, uh, which was done uh, prior to uh, this initiative to review the the strategy, show that the river is receiving 20% less inflows due to a changing climate. So the river is dying before our eyes. And we're saying how this process will be measured, how the review will be measured, and how the government response will be measured will really be reflective of what they managed to do for the Moorable River. And we're asking them to really step up because the, the river is in dire need for that. Yeah. Just before I head back to Erin, Cameron, I just wanted to ask about some of the issues relating to population growth. Obviously, you've mentioned their climate change and drought relating to climate change, which is a massive issue, but also population growth for anyone who lives in Ballarat or the city of Greater Geelong, they will be very well aware of the massive number of estates that have sprung up on the outskirts of Geelong and closer to the coast. And it really is something that comes up in the 
film. And there is this discussion that, well, surely we could come into the 21st century and think about innovative ways that we could actually source water that isn't taking too much from the river. So I was just wondering from your perspective, is that something that Palm is looking to continue the conversation on is to try and think outside the square about these issues and to, if the government, if the state government is going to continue approving and the council to continue approving these new estates to be built, and there are just so many being built and people moving down to this area, do we need to be realistic about how much water can actually be given to humans for human use. My word, and this is a pivotal point. If we're looking to double our population by 2060, I think some of the forecasts are for that water, uh, the rivers can't give up anymore. I mean, they're they're highly flow stressed and that low cost gravity fed water that supplied our towns and our cities, well, that isn't going to cope. And so we have to look to manufactured sources of water I mean, we're a little bit agnostic of where it comes from, but through the film, you know, we have people discussing um, desalination, particularly for Geelong, um, the use of stormwater, reuse of stormwater, and recycled water. And the recycled water debate, I know there's reticence within government to go there, but that has to be part of our future. And I think, you know, that, that ultimately will allow pressure to come off rivers because once you go to a, a different source then the the Swiss 15 years ago said once both Geelong and Ballarat looked to potable water substitution through recycled water, that's 6,000 megalitres that would come back to the river. Now, that's more than double what is available at Laulau. So here's an opportunity to really right some of the wrongs on this river. Um, And I'm I'm just hoping the government will step up and take that opportunity. Well, If a government does, you would assume it's going to be this government because they seem to have a political appetite for big changes and big reform. Erin, I know you have to go, so we'll just quickly check in with you on this final point that I wanted to bring in, which is the differences that you raised earlier about recognising rivers as a living entity, which is something that we are doing in Victoria, versus giving a a river legal personhood without having to get into that legal nitty-gritty. From a big-picture perspective, do you think it is um, something that Victoria and local communities should be advocating for? And if one was to do that, is there really a reason to choose for one route versus the other in a legal sense in terms of how a river's rights can be protected in terms of the right level of allocation and and preserving that connection that humans have with the rivers? To give you a very brief answer, when we think about what a legal person is, um, human beings are legal persons, so is a corporation. And the corporate form is what we typically think of when we think about Um, legal personhood, because those are the the specific rights and duties assigned by the law to a legal person. And so it includes the rights to sue. So you can go to court and sue someone. You can also be sued in court. So it immediately puts you into this adversarial legal framework. Um, It includes the right to hold property, um, including water rights. It includes the right um, to enter into an enforced contract. So those are very legalistic uh, ways of looking at things. For me, One of the interesting and telling um, histories of the corporation is that it was designed to separate risk from reward. So shareholders could gain the reward from a a corporation's profits, but they were not exposed to any of the risks undertaken by that corporation, you know, in in shipping or in in mining or in any of the, um, the sort of 
businesses that 500 years ago corporations were actually running. So if we think about rivers, rivers probably don't have any interest in separating risk from reward. And in fact, when we think about legal personality, it can fracture the relationship between people and country. Um, and so Aboriginal writers like Virginia Marshall have written on this to say that not only can it, it fracture the relationship between people and country, but it can also potentially displace traditional owner rights and interests in country. So I think we need to be wary of the legal person. It, it is a lot more powerful. So it does bring very specific legal powers. But unless you've got funding and organisational um, identity to back that up, then sometimes those legal powers aren't actually worth the paper they're written on. When we think about recognising rivers as living entities, what that does is actually centres our relationship with them. We recognise that they are alive. We recognise that we need to keep them alive. And so that, I think, is where we're starting to see the transformative long-term changes that could actually drive significant outcomes for rivers. And that's the kind of model that certainly traditional owners in Australia interpret it in different ways depending on, on the context, but that's the model that they are certainly more interested in because it's, it reflects and provides a space for um, the relationship between people and rivers. So I think that's, yeah, that's probably the angle that I would, I would be recommending at this stage because I think we need, we need to change the relationship. We need to change the conversation. We don't necessarily need to go to court and, in fact, one of the big gaps around the world, everywhere, is that when rivers are recognised as legal persons or living persons, none of them are actually receiving rights to water. So, at the moment, we have this massive disconnect between the way that we recognise rivers in law and the way we actually protect their right to flow. And so, all of those environmental water allocations um, that Cameron was talking about there. So, I think... We need to focus on the relationship between people and rivers and the way to do that is uh, the living entity or living person concept. And we also need to build that bridge between the way that people care for and understand rivers and the way we actually manage them as water resources. Yeah, you've really distilled a very complex topic into a really wonderful answer. So thank you, Erin, for explaining that uh, to us. And I'll let you go now and I'll um, just keep Cameron for one minute to mention the film screening. But thank you so much for joining us and explaining this in such beautiful language. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've been chatting with Dr Erin O'Donnell and she is a fellow at the Melbourne Law School and is an expert in water rights and the legal rights of rivers. Now, Cameron, um, bringing you back in uh, to conclude this conversation, I feel like my mind has certainly been opened so much uh, by having this conversation but also by watching this film. And as you said, it is a very powerful film and the medium of film is so powerful given what you mentioned there about the farmers who uncross their arms. Now, I know that the community in RRR and beyond are really passionate about the environment, so I know that they would love to understand this issue more and we've just touched on some of the topics that are covered in this film. I know that there is um, has been a screening in Ballarat and there is going to be a screening in Geelong which is hosted by the Geelong Land Care Network on July the 3rd which is a Saturday at 7pm at the Peter Thwaites Lecture Theatre in Warren Ponds which is I believe on the Deakin University campus. I just had a quick check on the website and it looks like it only just sold out but I'm wondering whether people could uh, go on a wait list or whether there'll be future screenings that they could attend. 
certainly. And, yes, I was told um, some of my family missed out on tickets because they <laughs> ended up too, too late. And it was quite extraordinary in Ballarat. We, we went from 75 maximum under COVID to 130 with a, a day's and a half's notice and it was sold out. We weren't wow. sure how popular it would be. Geelong virtually did the same. The 75 limit went off and we're now at 150 within a couple of days. So we were looking to do more screenings, both in Balan and um, Bannockburn, uh, but there will be discussion on, um, and, and we have spoken to Erin and possibility of bringing it to Melbourne. We, we've been overwhelmed by the response and we'll, we'll have to rethink. Uh, obviously, as small community groups, there's um, quite a bit of effort involved, but we'll certainly be trying to take this to a wider audience. And we've also had quite a bit of um, expressions of interest from schools as well. So the film will be getting out there and hopefully um, there'll be further opportunities for people to view it. Yeah, well, I'll certainly let everyone know on this show, as soon as there are future screenings, I'll inform everyone through our channels. And also, I believe that collectives like People for Remurable, you know, you are volunteer-based and you do do this because um, you love it and it's your passion and, and something that is driving, a driving force for people in the community. So it is something that is understandable. It's it's really impressive what you've done so far to advocate for the Murrable River. And if people want to connect in with your work to support your work, they can also head to your website at murrableriver.org to find out more. Is that the best way for people to get in touch with you and to connect in if they wanted to provide support or join in and be an interested partner? Party. Yeah, most certainly. Look, if um, the, the website, uh, there's a contact page there and, and if people leave their details, what we're asking is, is really the, the campaign in many ways uh, right now is focused around the strategy review and I think it's really important that the community voices have been heard. We haven't been happy with the way the community input has been sought uh, for this process and I think um, that's the first cab off the rank people can get involved in that process but it's also talking to other people about the, the situation. It's not only the Moorable, the, the Barn River is also uh, highly impacted. And writing to politicians, I think that's always a, a great way. So we put some sheets at the back of the, the venue uh, during the last um, showing and we had probably half the people actually fill those out, indicating that they're prepared to assist with this campaign. So... Look, um, I'd love people to stick their hand up because the, the river certainly needs it. And, you know, efforts like yourself, Amy, of um, publicising it are really deeply appreciated because that's how the word gets out. And, you know, w without people like yourself, you know, uh, we may be sitting there looking at uh, half-filled venues, but um, the work that you guys do, as I said, is really appreciated. So thank you. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for everything you've done so far and obviously extend our thanks to the Greater Palm Group for putting on such a wonderful documentary and also arranging these screenings and obviously lobbying really hard and getting that public engagement going and Triple uh, R and myself are only too happy to facilitate that. And um, I do 
wish you all the best of luck and it would be great to keep in touch and make sure that those listening who are really interested in this issue are kept abreast of the developments and can take part. So thank you so much, Cameron, for joining us today. And also thank you to Dr. Erin O'Donnell, who also joined us as well during this conversation. And I hope you have a really wonderful week. Excellent. Thanks very much, Amy. I've just been speaking with Cameron Steele, who is the coordinator of the group People for a Living Murrable, and we were also chatting with Dr Erin O'Donnell, who is a senior fellow at the Melbourne Law School, and she is an expert in uh, water rights and law and rivers as living beings, and she's recently released a free access paper, which does go into more depth on the issues that we've just been talking about that Erin brought up right towards the end of the hour. The article is called Rivers as Living Beings, Rights in Law, but No Rights to Water? And it's up on Taylor Francis Online and it's published in the Griffith Law Review and you can find the link to that on Erin's Twitter account, which is E-Z-Z-Y-O-D, if you want to find the link to her latest paper and if you have that interest in the legal difference between giving a river legal personhood and those types of rights as opposed to being recognised as a living entity. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.